Open your Bibles uh, again with me tonight to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And just a pre uh, heads up on the next uh, three Sunday nights, we will have the opportunity to hear uh, some testimonies of students who went to the Cross Conference. Uh, We've asked if they would each share something about their experience, what the Lord taught them. Uh, there, so we're looking forward to that beginning next Sunday night for three, uh, for the for the next three Sunday nights. Pray for them. They're nervous, I'm sure. Uh, I have, uh, according to our schedule, four. Sunday nights remaining to preach before the end of April, and I would like, if God allows, to uh, spend each of those in the Gospel of John, because it is my favorite uh, book, as it is for many of uh, for many of you I know, and I I love I've really grown to appreciate and love the Gospels and preaching the Gospels more than anything else. They're not more inspired, they're not more authoritative than any of the others. Uh, The words in red are not more um, from God than the words in black and all the rest of the scripture, but it is precious to be able to focus specifically on the Lord Jesus and his works and his words. This is the story, you know, of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus comes to her and asks her for water. We don't actually know if he ever got it. Doesn't actually say that uh, she gave him any water, but uh, the reality is that he's really come to give her water, and she gets it. And our prayer is that you would get it. Tonight also. A number of years ago, I guess it's been 25 years ago now because it was when Danielle was a, a, uh, an infant and uh, I had the privilege of some nighttime feedings. And during those nighttime feedings, uh, I borrowed, I didn't borrow during the nighttime feedings, but before, during the day, I borrowed from the library uh, Uh, the videos of Ken Burns' series on the Civil War. I don't know if you've seen those, but they are really fabulous. So I watched them during the middle midnight feedings. Danielle and I bound us together, and uh, it's a sweet time. But one of the stories in that, uh, Danny, are you able to fix that a little bit? Thank you. One of the stories in that series Uh, has to do with the Battle of Gettysburg, and after uh, General Lee's army was defeated and uh, they had gathered up all of their wounded and and dead and put them in wagons, and they're making their long trek back south from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And uh, these Wounded and dying people are just crying out. Just crying out. I can't imagine the misery of that scene. But without exception, it said they were crying out for water. They were so thirsty. They're losing all of their water and crying out for water. And I've often thought of that because we too are dying. We humans, because of the fall, because we went to war with God, are dying. And the one thing that we need is water. Cry out for it tonight. Cry out for it, dying soul. Plead with God to give you water. And He will give you water. But the, well, the wells that we often draw our sustenance from are not the ones that satisfy. 
Jesus satisfies, but we often draw our drink from other wells, like Jeremiah said about God's people back in uh, ancient Israel. In Jeremiah 2, he says, he says my, uh, God says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. And so we find ourselves, even, even believers who have tasted of true water, of living water, find ourselves drinking from broken cisterns and wondering why we're not satisfied. Well, this woman's story is our story. Her need is our need. Some of you are desperate to have Jesus meet that need tonight. Well, her satisfaction is also your satisfaction. So let's talk about satisfaction. This is uh, seeking satisfaction is what I've entitled this. And the first thing we'd like to see here in verses 1 through 6 is the setting for satisfaction. The setting for satisfaction. Verse 1. And when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. and It was about the sixth hour. So you see the scene here. Jesus and his disciples have been traveling all day long. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They're weary. Uh, they're traveling from Judea to Galilee, uh, avo uh, avoiding, trying to avoid some of the rising tensions. So Ben, could you put up, I want to give you a couple of maps here. I hope you can see. Um, this is really probably hard for most of you to see, but, but Jesus is around here in the Jordan somewhere, uh, baptizing, and uh, so uh, the Pharisees are irritated with him, and, and he starts getting flax, so he and his disciples head north. This area is Galilee up here. It's about, it's about 75 miles by car, probably more than that by foot. Uh, so they're... Uh, they're walking up here, and Samaria is this area. Samaria was the capital uh, region of the northern kingdom of Israel during the Old Testament. You know, Israel had divided into northern and southern kingdoms. Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. And so they're going up this way, and it says they had to pass through Samaria. So they're hot, they're tired, they're, they're thirsty. Um, and when it says they had to pass through Samaria, verse 4, uh, we would ask why. Why did they have to? You know, most things have different levels of explanation. The first reason they had to is because it was the quickest, most efficient route to get from down here to up here. From down here to up here. <laughs> uh, now, it's so often said, you know, preachers make a deal that, you know, the, the, the Jews so hated the Samaritans uh, that they went over here on the other side of the Jordan and went north and then cut across. But that, and, and sometimes that surely happened, but uh, Josephus, one of the historians uh, near that time, said that really what, uh, most, though they didn't like the Samaritans, uh, most went through Samaria because it was the most efficient way to get there. Uh, it's just too hard to go the other way too long about. That's one explanation for why Jesus had to do there. But the word that's used there, he had to pass through Samaria, is a word that's repeated throughout John's Gospel that speaks of divine necessity. 
And so as you read John's Gospel and you see constantly that Jesus had to do this or had to do that, you begin to realize hey, there's, there's a reason why he had to do it. And it wasn't just to get to the other side. Uh, there's a purpose in this. And we meet the purpose uh, when he gets to the Samaritan, uh, to the well, to Jacob's well. So they come to, the, to a city by the name of Sychar. Now I want to give you a little more geography. Keep this map up for a second. See this, see this town here called Nablus? I don't really know if that's how you say it, but I'm going to say it that way, Nablus. Right? Um, that runs between two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Go to the next slide, would you? Thank you, Ben. So here is, here is the Valley of Nablus. You see a road running through there now. And to the north here, this is Mount Ebal, and this is Mount Gerizim right here. Uh, you remember the story when, uh, when Israel first came into, uh, when the Israelites came through the desert, out of, out of uh, Egypt, came through the desert, around to this side of the Jordan and crossed over, and they came over here, and uh, one of the first things they did was put half of their tribes on Mount Gerizim and half of their tribes on Mount Ebal, and from Mount Gerizim, uh, they pronounced the blessings of God for faithfulness to His people. And on Mount Ebal, they pronounced the warnings of judgment of God against them if they are unfaithful. So blessings, judgment, pronounced. Now just at the foot of Mount Gerizim here is this town that's called Balata now. In those days it was called Shechem. And right here, right across the street here from Shechem, is Jacob's well. Now right over here, you see, this is like, this is like Roanoke and Salem. Uh, over here in uh, Salem, this is Askar. That's the modern name for Sychar. So it says that Jesus and his disciples came up here uh, to Samar through Samaria, they had to pass through Samaria, and they come into this region of Sychar. Now I suppose it says nearby was the field where Jacob's well was. So uh, maybe they called the whole region um, Sychar, like they call you know this whole region the Roanoke Valley sometimes. They came up here and they came to Jacob's well. Go to the next slide, please. <laughs> Here is Jacob's well. You see, you see what we do with these significant places in the Bible? You know, usually the Catholic Church comes in and, and they've built this shrine, this building, this cathedral over top of it, and they put all of these censers, these, uh, these lamps here hanging down and this canopy over it and the curtains, and it makes it almost look like the Ark of the Covenant here. Uh, but this, this is Jacob's well inside, inside this building with all of these pictures of holy people. I don't know who that is. Um, you think that's Jacob? It might be Jacob. Probably a pope. I don't know. Or an Eastern Orthodox somebody or other. Uh, so there you go. Back to the other slide. So this Jacob's well is, is right here. Uh, just north of Shechem, near Sychar. And that's, that's where they are, just to give you a, a visual image. Um, Jesus is not indoors uh, at this well. But before the, bill, before, before the shrine was built, there was Jacob's well, right underneath Mount Gerizim. And he meets this woman. So that's the setting of satisfaction. Now we go to the offer of satisfaction. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, 
How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of living water, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So here you have the thirsty woman at the beginning of this section. She's come at noon, uh, probably because she is an outcast. The other uh, women, it's said, come in the morning or come in the evening when it's cooler. Uh, but this woman comes in the daytime when there's nobody, in the, in the noontime when there's nobody else around. The sixth hour is, is lunchtime. They start counting from sunrise. And so the sixth hour is, is the noon hour. Um, and not unlike today, uh, this woman turns Jesus' request for water into a gender and a racial issue. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> uh, how is it that you, a man, ask me, a woman uh, of Samaria, for water? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. It, it, it makes me think of, uh, you know, there are, there are some folks out there that in, in our little town, uh, claim, they claim to be Christians, but they're really more like nationalists. You know, they're, they're zealous for, um, for America. Uh, they tend to be uh, white and male, and um, they are they are un, um, undoubtedly uh, Trump supporters, which is fine. Um, but imagine imagine one of them asking a Muslim woman for water. Um, you know the ones uh, Catherine. You know, worked at a fast food place for a while, our daughter Catherine, and uh, some of these men worked there, and they were extremely sexist in their comments. They were extremely nationalist, nationalistic in their uh, attitude, and they were against all Muslims. And uh, they were hateful, and they thought that was, that was the Christian way. And I can just imagine one of them, now they would serve a Muslim woman who came in and ordered a, you know, a biscuit or something. But I can't imagine. Uh, they, they had some awful, hateful comments to say about Muslims. So it's sort of like that. Here comes Jesus. Uh, he's from the group of people who hate Samaritans. And he's come and he sat down there and he's asked this woman, serve him water. Now that, that would, uh, you know, Samaritans were considered unclean. Jesus is willing to be unclean to meet this woman here. And then today, of course, you know, the woman would say, get your own water. <laughs> what are you doing? Asking. But Jesus wanted her to ask him for water. Uh, he, she, she came seeking water. Uh, uh, she came seeking water, but really, water came seeking her. And that's what's happening tonight. You, you may have come for something tonight, but something's come for you tonight. That's the more important thing. 
you got a thirsty woman, and then, then Jesus offers the living water in verses 10 through 15. Uh, and this living water is, this water is described as living, which, as we talked about this morning, is, is running water, it's fresh water, it's not stagnant water, it's, it's refreshing water. I think of a, of a bubbling uh, brook, you know, clean, fresh, refreshing. It's, he says it's satisfying in verse uh, 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. I've often wondered about that because we encourage you to keep coming back to church, you know, because we, <laughs> we think it's a, a good thing for you to keep feeding, you know, drinking of the water. Uh, and so you get this idea that, well, you never be thirsty again. Why do I need to keep coming back to Jesus? Uh, well, it's not, it's not like that. It's not like, you know, I cut. I mean, clearly with this water, I drink, and I'm going to be thirsty again in a few minutes, probably. Well, with Jesus, it's not like you come and get a drink and then go away. I think of it more like a, a sapling being planted in the ground, or, a, or a, a better illustration, is one that Jesus gives, is a branch being connected to a vine. Does that branch come for water and then go away thirsty? It doesn't. It's, it's always there. That's the point. It's always drinking of the water. That, what, that, and it's satisfying. And that's the way we come, we come to Jesus not to go away. We come to Jesus uh, to drink and to keep drinking. It's the abundant life that Jesus promises in chapter 10, verse 10, when He says this water that I give, uh, you'll never be thirsty again. He's, he's talking about the same thing as the abundant life that God gives in chapter 10, verse 10. And it's eternal life, verse 14 says. Everyone who drinks of this water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Uh, it will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, I, you probably, like me, when you hear eternal life, you think it's life that never ends. And that's true. But see, you're thinking of quantity of life mainly. When the Bible talks about eternal life, it's talking about quality of life mainly. That is the life of the eternal God. Eternal life is the life that comes down out of heaven. Comes down out of eternity. It's a partaking. To have eternal life is to partake in the very life of God Himself. To be partakers of His nature, as 2 Peter 1 says. It begins at the moment of faith and it continues forever. It is quantity but it's, but it's an eternal quantity of God's life. That's what Jesus is offering here. The life that comes down from God. And it is life that wells up within Him. Uh, that is within, I believe, the, uh, um, when it says at the end of verse 14, a spring of water welling up. Sorry, back up. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Uh, an argument can be made that in him refers to in Christ, uh, but I think the better evidence is that it's, the, it's uh, in him the believer, in him the one who receives the water. That uh, within him is a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And Jesus is referring here to the Holy Spirit. It's very clear. Go to chapter 7, verses 38 and 39, when he begins to talk more directly about the Holy Spirit. John seven thirty-eight says, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see that? Now, this he said about the Spirit. Well, that's pretty clear. Whom those who believed in him were to receive, 
For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So there's an anticipation of receiving the Holy Spirit as a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. That is through Him receiving eternal life. It's the same thing in chapter 3 when Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Uh, Not only of water, but also of spirit. Well, then you have the woman's responses here. She's confused in verses 11 and 12. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? So, uh, are you greater than our father Jacob? She's asking, really, who are you? Who are you? You're talking very strangely. (coughs) Are you greater than our father Jacob? And of course the answer to that is yes. But she's interested at the end of verse 15. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I'm not really sure if she's being a little bit sarcastic here or she's taking him overly literally or she's being genuine and she just she wants it, but she doesn't really understand yet. So Jesus runs with it. He's, uh, he's getting her situated to drink. That leads us to the unstopping of the well of satisfaction. There's an unstopping that needs to take place, a digging out. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Okay, she's interested. Give me, give me this water. So Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. Jesus always says the strangest things. It's like, how, what does this have to do with giving her living water? Well, everything. Right? It's just like Nicodemus, you know. I perceive you are a prophet from God. Nicodemus, you must be born again. And, and he's, all, he's, he's not answering the question coming from the mouth, but he's answering the question coming from the heart. He knows what's needed. So he says, call call your husband. Tell him to come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right (laughs) in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. What Jesus is doing here is exposing the well that her heart goes to. The broken cistern that her heart goes to. And that broken cistern is men or something to do with men. It's doubtful that all of her five husbands died. And now she's got a live-in guy. It's, It's evident that there's a problem here Evidenced by the fact that she's had five husbands. Jesus is trying to uncover, he's getting to a heart thing here. He's digging out uh, her well. He's exposing the broken cistern. He's saying, go, go uh, call your husbands. And she's, she's a serial, you know, uh, wife. She's, lo- she's looking. Why has she had five husbands and now she's living with a guy? She's looking for God. That's what we're all looking for. We've always been looking for God. But she's looking in the wrong place and Jesus has to point that out to her. The issue, the issue is relationship. Because she has, had, because she has no relationship with God, She's looking for it somewhere else. And notice, she she seems unable to form a real relationship. She's had these relationships with men, but it doesn't really seem like men is what she's looking for, right? She's not wanting a healthy relationship with another human being to to live together and to help each other. She's looking for something that men can give her and she's putting all of her weight on that and it's breaking it. Uh, she want, I don't know if she wants security, probably security, belonging, 
acceptance. She wants to be wanted. Maybe even if it's just for, you know, for the bed. I don't know. But she's, she's looked for God in those relationships. And when you look for God in something other than God, it always breaks it. It breaks the cistern. And she's broken and her relationships are broken. We do the same thing with, with alcohol, with drugs, with food, with money, with cutting, with pornography, with friendships. Bulimia is a growing thing, I understand. You know, binging and purging with food, shopping, uh, Netflix binging. You know, what, what are we... I'm serious about that. <laughs> uh, we're looking for relationships. Alcoholism, drunkenness is essentially a relationship with something. It's who I go to when I'm scared, when I'm anxious, when I'm uncomfortable. Food. Where do I go when I'm anxious, when I'm uncomfortable, when I'm afraid? I go, I'll go eat. I'll turn on Netflix. I'll open the refrigerator. I'll I'll do something that I've learned is comfortable, that gives me some comfort temporarily, but it won't last. It never lasts. And so we go deeper, right? Well, it lasted for a second. Got a little something out of it. We go deeper because we keep looking for that. Well, I'll get too off track. But what we're looking for is what we're looking for in all of these things is relationship. And what Jesus is offering is a new relationship. A new kind of relationship and a relationship with himself. And what he's offering is the Holy Spirit to bring about that relationship. Do you understand why Paul says In Ephesians 5, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. He's saying, don't have a relationship with alcohol that controls you. Have a relationship with Jesus. Having the Holy Spirit, being given the Holy Spirit, is not like being given a new superpower. You know, you're... Um, I, I got saved and now I'm Iron Man. Okay, I, Iron Man didn't have superpowers. He's just really smart. I, um, the Hulk, you know, superpowers. Uh, the having the Holy Spirit isn't isn't like getting a a new superpower. It's getting a re, a new relationship. It's God, it's God giving us a relationship with Himself through Jesus Christ. There is power that comes with that relationship. Jesus enables us to, to walk with Him, to hate our sin more, to love Him more. Uh, and there's a power that overcomes the power of the flesh. But it's the power of being in relationship. The Holy Spirit isn't a thing. It's not a force. It's not, it's not that you get zapped with electricity and now you can do stuff that you couldn't do before. It's that you know God. And, and, and having the Holy Spirit is, is how Jesus relates to us internally. That's why He's called the Spirit of Christ. And that's what Jesus is offering here to this woman. He's saying you can, you can have a relationship that frees you from all of these other relationships and really satisfies like none of these relationships are. And it's an anticipation 
of Jesus sending the Holy Spirit. What Jesus is in essence saying is, what I'm going to give you is a relationship with myself inside your heart. That's what he's, that's what he's offering. That's what he's offering you and me tonight. And in, in order to have that relationship, though, in this case at least, he's exposing the false and broken sources and relationships that have to be exposed and addressed before the new relationship can flourish. Now, many, many of us, I think, actually try to add the new relationship to the old relationships. But Jesus is saying you, you have to give up the old relationships to get the new relationship. That's repentance. It's a turning from and a turning to. It's not an adding to. I, I, can't, I can't maintain my pursuit of satisfaction through Netflix binging and just add Jesus on Sunday. I can't add to my alcohol Jesus. I can't add to my drugs or my food addictions Jesus. Jesus has to say to us, bring me, bring me your husbands. And then expose the fact that they're not our husbands, are they? Maybe that's why we're not, some of us, not satisfied tonight is because we've just added Jesus to our other sources. We've, we've dug a new well and just added it to the old wells. Sometimes we come to this one. Most of the time we go to the other one. Well, that leads us to the source of satisfaction in verses 19 through 26. The last point here. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> Our fathers worship our fathers worshipped in this mountain. It's, you know, Gerizim, Mount Gerizim, remember, was right next to where they were seated. That's, that's the mountain that the Samaritans said, this is the mountain that God wants us to worship at. Our fathers said, uh, worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So this woman keeps diverting, doesn't she? I mean, what's going on here? Well, Jesus has exposed her. Uh, and it may, it may be that when she brings up this, you know, Gerizim or Jerusalem, is it this mountain or is it that mountain? It may be that she's saying, okay, I'm exposed. Where do I go for cleansing? Uh, but I rather think uh, that the light is just too bright. You know, men, John 3, men love the darkness rather than the light because they hide in the darkness. And it seems like she's taking some cover here in theological controversy. That happens, doesn't it? <laughs> like, uh, you're talking to me about Jesus and everything, but... You know, there's this argument. There's this controversy. Well, that's just a diversion. Um, a lot of skeptics go there. But who There's controversy. Who really knows what's true? How do we know, right? There's this controversy. You say, uh, you know, you're Calvinist. There's Arminians. I mean, who really knows? 
And that's why, by the way, it's a little precarious for churches to always be dealing in controversies. The, the average person can't keep up with it. And in the end, you say, I don't, who knows? And they off they go. You know, you've got to deal with some controversies when they start coming in and having influence, but it's not the, it's not the bread and butter. And it becomes an excuse to avoid the light. But Jesus is so patient, he's, he's not distracted. He can, he can get to the gospel from every side road, every detour that's taken. He, he comes back there, this mountain or, or that mountain. And so he, he clears away that obstacle first. He's, he tells her the truth. Now, Jerusalem is the right place. Salvation is of the, of the Jews, right? The Samaritans are wrong. But the point is that there's coming a time, an hour, and now is when it's not this mountain or that mountain. It's not the point. Controversy doesn't matter. <laughs> and then he, bring, he brings her, he starts pointing, he, he starts narrowing it down, right? He's narrowing it down and he's, he starts giving some gospel pointers. He talks about this coming hour in verse 21 and verse 23. What hour is he talking about? He's talking about the hour of the cross. This hour is referred to throughout the gospel, chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 7, verse 30. I won't read them all, but I, but I could. Uh, chapter 8, verse 20, chapter 12, verse 23, chapter 12, verse 27, chapter 13, verse 1, chapter 17, verse 1. This hour, the hour, the hour is coming, the hour is coming. Finally, we come to chapter 19. I do want you to look there. Chapter 19, verse 14. Um, we'll go back to chapter 17, verse 1. Sorry, we'll look at one other hour. Chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. This is, this is the... Um, he's with His disciples. This is the night before He dies. And he says, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may, be glor uh, may glorify you. And he's talking about the, Christ, uh, the, the cross. And then chapter 19, verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. This is, this is the day of crucifixion. It was about the sixth hour. And Pilate says to the Jews, Behold your king. This, this is the other sixth hour in John's gospel. Jesus came to the woman at the well. At what hour? The sixth hour. Here's the other sixth hour in John's gospel. This is, this is the hour. You know, it's, it's interesting. The other gospels kind of break it up. You know, it's the sixth hour, and then the ninth, then the ninth hour, he, he cries out, you know, and and there's, uh, there's a couple of different hours that are mentioned. John's Gospel only mentions the sixth hour, the sixth hour, and then it's like he puts everything else in that hour. He doesn't mention any other hours. He just mentions the sixth hour and then goes from there to the crucifixion. And so it's still in a, in a literary sense, not, not in the time of day, literally, but in, in the literary sense, all of this is happening in this in the sixth hour, and you come to you come to verse twenty-eight of John nineteen, and Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture. What does he say? I thirst. I thirst. What that hour, what the hour that's represented here, the hour that reaches its climax on the sixth hour when Jesus sacrifices Himself, what this will do is bring the reality of the temple, 
the reality of the place of worship. It will bring about the reality of the temple. Sorry, it will bring about the reality that the temple in Jerusalem only foreshadowed, and it will bring true worship that frees worship from all geographical boundaries. The hour is coming and now is, pointing to that hour when Jesus Himself thirsted on the cross. The hour is coming and now is when neither on this mountain or that mountain will men worship, but in spirit and in truth. That hour will free us from going to this mountain or that mountain. This coming hour frees us from geographical boundaries for worship. We don't need to face east like the Muslims. We don't need to go on pilgrimage to the Ganges like the Hindus. We don't, we don't need to even only worship here. We need to come together because this is the body of Christ, but it's not because this is a holy place. Why? Because that hour has come. The hour of Christ's death. And now, where do we worship? At the feet of Jesus. That coming hour is a pointer. And then he talks about salvation being from the Jews in verse 22 back in chapter 4. He says salvation is is from the Jews in verse 22. And he doesn't, only, he doesn't only mean that the Jews had it right about worshiping in Jerusalem. He also means, here I am. Salvation from the Jews. And then he talks about true worship in spirit and in truth. And when he says in spirit and in truth, he's not just saying with your head and with your heart, as though spirit in, worship in spirit means Worshiping with enthusiasm and emotion and worshiping in truth means worshiping with intellect and understanding. We need to worship with emotion and with understanding, but that's not what he's saying. When he says true worshipers worship in spirit, he's saying since God is spirit, that is, he's not bound by space or time, to worship him truly demands that we also are to be spiritual that is, partakers of the divine nature, that is, have the Holy Spirit. And by the Holy Spirit, we worship in spirit, in the Spirit. And we worship in truth. That is, according to God's revelation of Himself by His Word, and that Word is incarnate in Christ. And Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. And so when Jesus says, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. He's saying it's not in this place or in that place, but here. In my presence, at my feet, my, I who am with you now and will be in you. And then He sets the hook in verses 25 and 26. The woman makes a last ditch attempt. Uh, at diversion, I know that Messiah is coming. Praise God, she knew something. Praise God that you, you kids are being raised in church. You, you're learning stuff now. And it may be that God doesn't save you now, but it may come back. God may use this. God is using what this woman has learned in her worship on Mount Gerizim or from her whoever her teachers are, I know the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When He comes, He'll tell us all things. It's like, yeah, you're speaking pretty authoritatively, but I still don't know. I mean, who are you? When Messiah comes, then we'll, then we'll know. And Jesus says, now is that day. And literally, Jesus says to her, I am who speak to you. I am. Well, um, this whole thing reminds me a bit of 
another story at another well back in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 24 when Abraham sends his servant to go find a wife for his son Isaac. And so the servant goes on a, on a hunt, goes to Abraham's home country, and he comes to a well. And um, uh, he asked the Lord, you know, give me a sign. And uh, the Lord gave him a sign. And it, and, uh, it was Rebecca. And Rebecca comes and says exactly what the servant had prayed, that if, if this is the one, you know, have her say this. And she says this. And so uh, the servant goes home with Rebecca and he talks with, uh, he talks with Rebecca's brother and Rebecca's mom. And, and then... Um, Rebecca's mother and her brother say to Rebecca, Will you go with this man? And that's, that's what Jesus is asking you tonight. As he's asking this woman at the well, at this well, Will you go with this man? Leave, leave all the other men, whatever they are in your life. Will you go with this man? And Rebecca says, I will go. Will you go? He'll give you a new relationship and a new life. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you that you, you know what is in man. You have, no, you have no need for anyone to teach you anything about what's in us because you know what's in man. You know what's in every individual heart that's here tonight. You know what our you know the men that we're living with in whatever form that comes. You know what broken cisterns we're constantly drinking out of to find satisfaction. And we pray that tonight you will expose them, that you will offer to every soul a new relationship, one that frees us from all the others, and gives us real life and real satisfaction. And we pray tonight that every soul present will say, either for the first time or for the millionth time, I will go with this man. Grant it, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.